Before I get to my assigned text this morning in chapter 4 of the book of Mark, I want us to remember a few things from our journey the last two weeks through Mark chapter 3. And as we do, I want to point out that Mark is not particularly concerned about keeping everything in chronological order. He just throws out Jesus stories. It's an action book and he says things quickly in rapid succession. He has recorded the stories from interviews with eyewitnesses. Most likely Peter was his primary source. And again, he just throws it out there for us real fast. For the record, Mark records more miracles than any of the other three Jesus historians. And he writes more about Jesus' interaction with demons as well, emphasizing Jesus' spiritual authority. The kingdom of God is very much about rescuing the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve from the power and the stronghold of the evil one and restoring for those who are interested, not everybody is interested, into a right relationship with their creator, as Kevin and Lee emphasized the last two weeks. And as Lee said last week, Jesus is really calling us to choose sides. Whose friend, whose servant, whose lover are you? To whom or to what are you bound? Mark's last chronicling of Jesus' life in chapter 3, if you recall, was Jesus' earthly family coming to take him away, doing an intervention. They thought he was mentally ill, accompanied at the same time by the Jewish leadership, proclaiming that Jesus was demonized or possessed. And Jesus told them all, I'm not crazy. I'm not demonized. Rather, he said he was full of the Holy Spirit of the living God, and they better be real careful about what they were saying. And then he redefined who his family was, as Lee pointed out, by saying, was anyone that does the will of his father. Jesus emphasized over and over again in his teachings that the primary will of God for each of us was that we believe on him and reorder our lives to reflect his teachings. Our beliefs should be accompanied by life change. John 6, 29-40, Jesus says this, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. For my Father's will is that everyone looks to the Son and believes in him and is given eternal life. God will raise him up on the last day. Jesus will go further, as we're going to see in today's parable, and emphasize a very bothersome, a very hard, a very unpopular truth in today's culture that those that truly believe on him and are saved are in the minority. Matthew records Jesus saying it this way, Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Enter through the narrow gate, Jim, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many go through that gate, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So with all that in mind, turn with me if you have a Bible to Mark chapter 4, and we'll read, and I'll exposit lightly, the first 20 verses of that chapter. And again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. He had to leave this synagogue. Maybe he was booted out, so to speak. But more likely, the crowds were just simply too large for a small hometown church, like a synagogue, so to speak, could hold. The crowd that gathered around it was so large, he had to get into a boat and sit in it on the lake and teach the people that lined the water's edge. Verse 2, he taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching, he said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow seed, a very common sight in that day and time, a man walking through his field scattering seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell among the path, and the birds came and ate it up. What he means is that some of the seed just lapsed out of the field onto a hardened path or road that ran through the field. Some fell on rocky places and where it did not have much soil, 
thin soil area where the rock was near the surface. And it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they were withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked out the plants so they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil, the soil that had been fertilized, had been tilled, had been plowed, that was prepared for them. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus says, Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. A loose paraphrase is, if you're really interested in what I'm saying, listen intently and take it and apply it to your life. Beginning in verse 10. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him, his larger group of disciples, not just the 12 disciples, but a lot of the men and women that followed him, asked him about the parables. He said this to him, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Now, he's not trying to keep this secret from other people. He's saying that the secret that is now being revealed, the mystery that's now being revealed by his coming to earth as the sin sacrifice and revealing the teachings or the ethos of the kingdom of heaven has been given to those that want to hear it. But to those on the outside, those that really don't want to hear it, that are just following him because of the miracles and because of the powerful teaching, but really not wanting to apply the teaching to their lives, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving. By the way, this is a prophecy from Isaiah 6. 9 and 10, given 700 years or so before. They may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, meaning those men and women that were serious about following him, don't you understand this parable? There's a little irritation in his voice. How then would you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. It's the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, the principles of the kingdom, the teachings of Jesus, the ethos he came to bring. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes along and takes the word away that was sown. Satan is the birds in the metaphor or the parable that snatches the seed from the road that was sown in them. Verse 16, others like seed sown on rocky places or shallow soil, hear the word and once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. In other words, when trouble comes, what it means here is when they have to sacrifice or give up something to apply the word to their life, they fall away. Verse 18, still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, The deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Key thought here is fruitfulness versus unfruitfulness. Verse 20, others like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some a hundred times what was sown. There's fruitfulness in the good soil when the seed takes root. Let me exposit or expand a little bit uh, on those verses just for a moment before we move on. The seed is obviously the word of God or the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus described himself, and John did too, 
as the living Word of God. The sower, in this story, it's Jesus, but He really means anyone that shares spiritual truth with anyone else or any group of people. The people in the first three soils in Jesus' parable had made themselves unable to hear and understand and apply it to their lives. Jesus was teaching truth that an honest seeker, another phrase for good soil, could understand if they really pursued him and would be willing to apply what they did understand to their life. It's a very simple principle from Scripture. It's over and over, Old and New Testament. Seek God and He will be found. Seek Him with all your heart, soul, and mind. And as you begin to understand and apply the truth that you do understand and you've been given, God will give you more and more and more to build on. The hearing God wants from us is not like listening to background music. He wants hearing that motivates us, that empowers us, that causes us to believe and respond, making decisions that change our worldview, that change our attitude, that change our relationships, the places we go, who we hang out with, our spending habits, decisions that break addiction, that cause us to move away from the enemy's plan for our life and move toward God's plan for our life. Again, the term mystery or secret of the kingdom. Jesus is not saying he's trying to keep things from people. He simply means that that time has come to reveal the mystery. But not everyone is interested in that revelation in a way that they will apply it to their lives. Only those who want to hear and who are seeking truth get to see and understand this mystery. Jesus is saying that he came to speak truth. And he's saying he wants to demonstrate that truth as he did with great power, signs and wonders, if you will. <clears throat> but he felt like he might as well be speaking to a brick wall. Have you felt that way at times in your life when you're trying to get someone to understand and they don't listen or they don't seem to get it? Many of the people were blinded, made dull by their own prejudices, by their own desires and spiritual and intellectual laziness. Jesus is frustrated with the lack of fertile soil around him at this point. And the tone here is really re what I would describe as regretful love mixed with just plain irritation. Jesus is also explaining to his first century disciples, those that want to follow him, why only a portion of the crowd is really, are really Jesus followers, true Jesus followers. And I want to give you a warning that's jumping out all over this story, and particularly pointed out this last week. It's a warning for all of us. Persistent unbelief, when confronted with great spiritual truth over and over again, can, it doesn't always, but it can result in a hardened heart. It's a warning. With no capacity left to understand. Jesus had healed thousands He'd cast out demons. He'd walked on water. He'd raised the dead. He'd created food. And they still didn't believe. Many did not, at least. Now to the soils, the meat of the parable or the story. The four soils could be described three different ways. They're related. They could be described as four types of responses to the truth that was shared or the seed that was sown. They could be described as four types of hearers that hear the word differently. Or they could be described as simply 
the results of four different kinds of hearing. Let me just do that for us one by one. The first one I would call a non-response. The seed that fell on the hard path that was eaten by the birds, there was no response. The hearer simply remained enslaved to and blinded by the prince of darkness, according to Jesus. Please don't miss something here. I want you to note something. And I would argue that most Westerners miss this point. Jesus is assuming that you and I understand that there is spiritual interaction going on between you and every individual and forces of evil. I know that's a scary thought, but it's fact. Satan or devils or demons came and snatched that seed or that word from that person's mouth or mind or heart or soul or whatever. In order to do that, there had to be some touch point, some interaction. It didn't just happen. I'll go on. The second response. I would describe it as a superficial response. The shallow soil. It could have been an emotional response. Maybe not. It could have been just intellectual assent. James says this about intellectual assent in James 2.19, that even the demons believe and tremble. The hearing that Jesus is looking for again is a hearing that is intent on applying what's been heard to our lives. There was no intention in the shallow soil to do that. Superficiality indicates an unwillingness to participate with the Holy Spirit in life change because the person is not willing to sacrifice anything to obtain life change. Number three, the worldly response. The truth gets choked out by weeds and thorns. Jesus describes those hearers generally as people that are more concerned about the worries of this world first. And secondly, could be the deceitfulness of riches or the pursuit of wealth. Or thirdly, just in general, the desire for other things in this world. I want to point out some scriptures that illustrate this principle from the New Testament. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, on the top of the topic of anxiousness or worry about the things of this life, says this in Matthew 6, 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry, Jim, about your life. Don't waste your time just constantly worrying and being anxious and fearful and concerned about what you'll eat or drink, about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Verse 33, he says, but do this, Jim. Seek first me. Seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness. And he's not just talking about the righteousness of Christ here the imputed righteousness that we get by faith when we believe. He's talking about habits of righteousness, pursuing life, applying those teachings I've given you about how to do this and how not to do that and how to change your life by disciplining yourself and applying habits of righteousness to your life. Pursue and seek those things, those habits, those disciplines, and all these other things that you need. I'll give them to you as well. The antidote for worry, fear, anxiety is not to not worry, not fear, not be anxious and try not to do that. It's to simply move toward God, toward his kingdom in our thought life, 
It happens to me almost every night. I wake up most nights fearful after four or five hours of sleep, anxious, worried about the hundreds of things I'm involved in. And, and I think I have the power to, to control or manipulate or change those things by hard work. And I start scheming and planning and worrying more. And then I realize <laughs> what I need to do is give it to God and move toward God. And mentally, as I move toward God and begin to pray about things and give things to Him, my attitude and my spirit changes and my worry level and my anxiety decreases. Next thought here is about wealth. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, and then verses 17 through 19. There's a negative thought here, a warning, but there's also a wonderful positive thought about how to use wealth in this passage. And I'll cover both. Paul, speaking to his disciple Timothy, says this, Those who want to get rich, verse 9 of chapter 6, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money itself, but the love and the pursuit of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Then verses 17 through 19, command those who are rich in this present world, and many who are hearing my voice, even though you don't consider yourself rich, most of the people in this world will consider you rich. Not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's okay to use the good things that a good God has given you for good things, for good works, and even to enjoy those things. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and to be willing to share. In this way, you will lay up treasure for yourself as a firm foundation for the coming age so that you may take hold of life, the life that is truly life. And he's not talking about eternal life. He's talking about real life here and now as you invest your resources in the things that matter. And the last point, the other, I guess, pleasures of this world, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, another warning by John written late in his life. He says this, Jim, don't love the world. He's not talking about the world that God created, God's creation, nature, or the things in nature. He's talking about a world system ruled by the ruler of darkness, the seed snatcher, if you will, in the Jesus illustration. Don't love the world or anything in the world. Anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not anything. For everything that's in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And those things are passing away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. The mark of a worldly response is unfruitfulness. Fruit is described three ways in the New Testament. First, character change. Second, good works. And third, spiritual multiplication. By that I mean investing our lives in people and helping them grow spiritually as well. We call that evangelism or discipleship or both. The mark of this kind of hearing, this worldly response to the gospel is unfruitfulness. Finally, the fourth response. A sincere, proactive response, the good soul. These hearers grow in their relationship with Jesus and they bear fruit over time. There's character change. There's good works that start to show up. 
And there's an investment in other people's lives, spiritual multiplication, if you will. John 15, some of the last words of Jesus on the last night of his life with his boys, a very important passage, John 15, 5, Jesus says this, and this is the key to it all, a relationship with Jesus. I'm the vine, Jim. You're a branch. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, Jim, you can do nothing. Verse 8, this is to my Father's glory, by the way, that you bear much fruit. You and I were created to bear fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples by the fruit that you bear, if you will. I'm going to switch things up now. And I'm going to come at this in a completely different way for the next few minutes. So bear with me. C.S. Lewis was without a doubt one of the most creative and ingenious Christians of the 20th century. He firmly believed, like Jesus did, like Paul did, and like I do, that devils, if you will, are always interacting with us on almost almost continual basis. But by that, C.S. Lewis meant Satan and his organized forces of evil. They interact with us. They're not only seed snatchers, to use a Jesus phrase, they're also to use more Jesus phrases, liars and deceivers that want to steal, kill, and destroy you and every relationship you've got. One of C.S. Lewis's literary masterpieces, and he had quite a few. This one I highly recommend to you is the Screw Tape Letters. It's an easy read. It's a fun read. It was written in 1941 in another time. Lewis's primary literary character is Screw Tape. Screwtape is a high-ranking demon that is coaching in the book a lower-ranking demon named Wormwood on how to deal by manipulation, lies, thought-planting, by the stimulation of someone's senses, and by every conceivable means of influence, a young British man that Wormwood has been assigned to destroy. This man is simply referred to in the book or in the letters as His subject, Wormwood's subject, or his patient. The goal, of course, is to deceive the young man, wreck and ruin his life, to substitute worldly pleasure for true happiness, and ultimately lead him to an eternity in hell. I want to use some of Screwtape's advice this morning to illustrate Jesus' teachings in Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. I'm going to use a little literary license and rewrite just a few phrases in there to make it more contemporary. Listen to some of Screwtape's letters to Wormwood. Let's get started. My dear Wormwood, do everything you can to keep your subject's attention focused on anything other than what Lewis calls universal issues. When he starts to reflect or focus on some grain of truth, Your job is simply to distract him and fix his attention on the stream of immediate senses that are around him. Sensual experiences, if you will. Teach him to call these experiences real life. And don't let him ask himself what he means by the word real. In one case, for example, successfully snatches up a seed of spiritual reality that is sown in the subject's life. The man is in a museum. 
thinking for a moment about the big questions of life. Where do I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And Wormwood simply makes him aware that he's hungry and gets him to go out into the street looking for food where he smells food and sees things and the sights and the sounds of the real world bring him back to his senses and the so-called reality of this life. Eventually, though, the subject professes to become a Christian. But I want you to listen to Screwtape's advice to Wormwood at this point about the so-called conversion of the subject. And I want you to think about Jesus' words about the parable of the thin and shallow soil as you hear these words. My dear Wormwood, I note with great displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. There's no need to completely despair. Hundreds of these so-called adult converts have been reclaimed by us after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp. All the life habits of your patient, by the way, both mentally and bodily, are still in your favor. Moving on now to the seed that fell among the weeds and was choked out by the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth and just basic human desire. I want you to listen very, very carefully this time to this last piece of advice from an experienced demon to a less experienced one. My dear Wormwood, the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. Let me repeat that for you. The only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man relationally from God. It doesn't matter how small or trivial the sin is, or or even if it is a sin at all. It can just be a distraction. As long as the cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and toward the nothing. Murder or adultery is no better than an obsession with cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. At this point, I'll quote Jesus. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm pleading with you that are watching and listening to me right now to get serious about your relationship with Jesus during these hard times that we're in. If you've never really believed the gospel message and professed that belief by baptism, then do it. Simply do it now, today, this week. Tell God that you understand that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And you believe that God came to earth 2,000 years or so ago, born to a virgin teenager named Mary. That He really did raise the dead, heal the sick, feed the hungry, and teach powerful spiritual truths. And that He was executed as a sin sacrifice according to His own spiritual laws. And that He rose from the dead. And He's now in heaven awaiting the day He'll return and make all things new. Then demonstrate that profession of faith. Again, by being baptized, as he modeled and as he commanded his followers to do. Get another Christian to baptize you. Send us a video from your phone, and we'll celebrate with you and show it on Sunday morning. I know that times are hard, but look at it this way. God has pulled some distractive weeds from the garden right now. There's no sports for me to watch. (laughs) He's given us more time and space 
for the sunlight to reach us. It's time to grow and flourish and bear fruit. The hour is late. And the Son of Man is willing to be found by you if you'll pursue Him with all your heart. A few weeks ago, I went to hear a preacher by the name of John Tyson, some of you know, share a message that he's sharing everywhere he goes right now. His key passage was Hosea 10, verse 12. One verse. It was about breaking up the hard ground, the unplowed ground in our own lives. God is again using an agrarian metaphor here to convey spiritual truth. This is God pleading with us to pursue Him and promising blessing if we do. I'll close with that one verse. So righteousness, that means habits of righteousness in your life for yourselves, and reap the fruit of unfailing love, God's blessing. Break up the unplowed ground, the hard ground, the unfertile soil in your life, for it's time, folks, to seek the Lord. He's given us this time. The time is now. Until He comes and manifests Himself in power and showers righteousness, His blessing on you. That hard ground that needs to be broken in your life could be a number of things. It could be sins or hurts from your past you've not dealt with. It could be spiritual disciplines you need to employ like prayer or Bible reading or giving or worshiping or serving or engaging people in faith discussions. It could be undeveloped areas of gifting. It could be things that God's asking you to give up or limit. It could be strongholds or obsessions or addictions or it could be unhealthy relationships or destructive and unhealthy thought patterns or long-standing sin patterns you've excused for way too long and tolerated. Ask God to speak to you about the unplowed ground in your life right now, this week. Now is the time to deal with these issues and pursue the Lord until He shows up in a big way and showers righteousness and blessing on you. I pray that for you right now in this week. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.